Jeremiah Craig coming at you for another edition of Ask the Bootmaker. Today we are talking with Paul from PK Bootmaker out of Prescott, Arizona. Hey Paul, how's it going? Oh, we did it. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> how's your day going so far? Um, you know, it's interesting. It was a rebound from the mood and the funk that I was in last night from life, the world, you know, the whole, the whole thing, all that stuff. I was feeling it, but um, I've been talking myself up. Let's get right into the discussion here because I'm feeling the same way. I'm like on this huge rebound. So let's work off that energy. Can you give us an origin story of how you became a bootmaker and created PK Bootmaker Company? Just like episode one, like the, the pilot of your uh, TV show, if you were to have one. A Boy Scout, uh, hobby, leather craft. Uh, I still have my Lucky 7 uh, stamping tools. Um, it was my hobby on every application I filled out as a teenager. Um, I found out my draft number was coming up on my birthday. I joined the Air Force. When I got out, I didn't want to do that. I didn't succeed at getting a job as uh, a lucrative roofer, which I thought that's good money, I'll do that. Uh, and uh, I walked into a shoe repair shop and they put me to work the next day. Uh, I did that for 25 years, raising my family, um, made uh, three pair of boots. Uh, the first pair was in a boot repair shop. That was all we did. It was during the urban cowboy thing. Um, Justin, Nakona, Tony Lama, uh, Dan Post, they all sent their uh, referrals, their uh, accounts to our shop to get their customers' boots repaired because they'd closed down their boot uh, repair shops because it was like all hands on deck. So uh, for four years, I did that. That's where I made my first pair with a, uh, um, a Utah Mormon shoemaker standing over my shoulder. Said, I don't know boots, but we can understand this. It's okay. And uh, I, I love what I learned from him. He, his humility was just a, a perfect example for me. Uh, I would I would screw up in something and, and he'd come over, he'd look over at my shoulder and he'd say, now you see, if you'd let me do it, then it would be my fault. <laughs> and I just, that, I've used that a million times uh, since then because it was such a good way to look at life, you know. Uh, but uh, finished doing shoe repair during the uh, early 90s. While you wait, shoe repair was maniacal and I burnt out. Uh, Moved to Phoenix, worked for five years for Galco Gun Leather. Uh, I was working their uh, belt department uh, and um, missed customer service, especially after I got chewed out for being a quarter inch off on the way a belt was punched. But I could have talked the customer out of it. And I figured, you know, I got to get on my own where I can deal with my own customer. You know what I mean? So uh, we moved up to Prescott uh, with a plan and it changed. And we decided, let's just see what happens next. And I pulled out D.W. Fromer's book that I'd used for those, uh, at least the second and third pairs of boots. And for five years, I kept it open on my bench. Um, they say you can't call yourself a bootmaker until you've thrown about a dozen pair in the corner. I don't know if you've ever heard that or not, but um, it's a it's a process. You know, it's not a it's not a finger snap. And um, it was after about five years that I decided that I could maybe take on that 
appellation of a being a bootmaker. So it was all uh, forward motion from there. That's great. It's it seems like you have a lot of forward motion because your boots are just beautiful. And just this opening segment right now where you're, you're talking about um, your come up and getting into boots, it seems like you have a lot of sayings, either that's from like uh, your, your, your guide coming up or it's like, and then you also have some on your website. The one that on, on your website that really stood out to me was your quote, it's not brain surgery. Boot cowboy boot making is not brain surgery, but a brain surgeon couldn't do it. What does that mean for you? Well, <laughs> um, you know, the expression obviously, you know, is something that people use to say that that's easy. You know, it's not brain surgery. Uh, but on the other hand, um, the learning curve is uh, kind of a painful thing. I mean, you have to. You have to assess yourself regularly, you know, as you go through the failures and uh, you can only aspire to do better. And um, so the, the skill and the focus that a brain surgeon has uh, would take a while before he could bring those to bear to become a bootmaker. Bootmaker, bootmaking isn't even like shoemaking. There's shoemakers who come to Texas to learn how to make boots. There's a couple of great examples. One particular fellow in Sweden that I just really love. I spent a good bit of time with Tex Robbins several years back. I almost, I think they might have been family, but uh, anyway, you know, it's it's a process. It's different. So, uh, and it's kind of hard, man. <laughs> what is the hardest thing about it? That was a question that uh, I got from Lucas, who is on the stream right now. He was wondering what is the most difficult part of the bootmaking process. It's not cutting parts and fitting them together, except how one has to interpret fitting them together for that particular customer's feet left and right. You know, we, we spend, I mean, you know, I, I have like, I haven't really counted them or I did, but I don't remember 16 or so measurements that we take, you know, when we're fitting somebody up for a pair of boots, Dustin mentioned uh, how many he takes. Um, and, and you make notes, you know, uh, my instruction from DW is that you fit what's there. And so you have to like look and think and relate it to the last that the leather is going to be pulled over and turn that last into a representation of the customer's foot. And that's the that's the stressful part, because now, you know, you're getting into a soul, excuse the misspelling, but it's it's a thing that is it's close to that person and how they're going to fit and react to it. So. There's a little bit of tension there, you know. I don't get so tense anymore about getting a nice clean sky that doesn't show. Uh, some of my fellow bootmakers would say it's sure taken me a long time to get a nice clean sky that doesn't show, but uh, I'm working on that. Uh, so to go back to the, uh, the brain surgeon deal, um, it's easy when one has uh, the bad habit of self-recrimination uh, you know, negative self-talk and stuff. But DW's counsel was really good for me that helped uh, a lot. And I like to share it is that uh, you should always only ever find three things that you'll do better on the next pair. Don't do less than that because you're fooling yourself. 
And don't do more than that because it's just not that necessary to beat yourself up about it. It's a curve. You have to you have to walk the curve. You have to. Yeah, it takes the time. Geez, that that sounds like it's good advice for just about anything that you're doing in life. That's why I have so many sayings on my page because so much of what we do is relevant to persevering through life, no matter what it is we you know we want to do. You know, I tr I truly believe that it can only be done by blood and sweat and tears, and that's you know that's what it's like for you as a musician i you know if somebody were to interview and you i'm sure you would pick out where the hardest part was and and think there's some others that you're not mentioning oh yeah all the time i take that same approach too uh not with that saying in mind but it i always listen to a recording that i made and then w when i make another recording i'm trying to look back at those other ones and say, well, I didn't quite like this. Let's simplify it or add this. Let's try something else in the mixing of it. And you're right. If you try to do too much at one time, if you try to make too much progress or not do enough, either you get frustrated or you get bored. And th that three things seems like a really nice medium. It does. I think so too. Uh, for me, I have found that um, if I have my relationship that I try to establish with my customer in my mind while I'm working on their boots, it helps me to persevere. You know, um, I, I found this very interesting. I began to be aware that that's the way I'm made. Um, when one day I had two customers in my shoe repair shop in San Mateo when I was in California. Um, the first guy that came into my shop, um, I think he thought a little much of himself. I don't know what the problem, new customer to me. He just like really projected that I'm not going to do a good job for him. And he just really projected it. And it was like, I was just really soaking it up and I didn't. And I thought, look at what he did to me. You know, he had me telling myself, I'm not going to do a good job and I didn't do a good job. Now, on the other hand, I'd had a conversation and um, I remember this man's name is Mr. Brown. They were brown pair of shoes. So it was like I was doing a brown thing in my head the whole time. Um, he had, we'd had this long conversation. And while I was repairing his shoes, I got, I got done with them. And it was like, they were beautiful because I was replaying the conversation with Mr. Brown who had confidence that I was gonna do a good job on him. And we had this relationship and this rapport and it, it was a while later before I kind of correlated the two of them. And I have since tried to turn that into uh, uh, a, a superpower, if you will, you know, to make a difference in the world. Yeah. It sounds it. So do you keep that in mind when working with people who might be coming into doing business with you uh, with a negative mindset? Or do you just turn away those people altogether now? I don't. Um, I usually don't engage with people that have a negative mindset. You know, um, I did have uh, a time here in Prescott. I was uh, screwing up a lot and I didn't like the way I was acting about my customers. They were throwing me off my schedule and I was doing the wrong steps. And I just, I moved out of town and I came home and I worked for a few years. I also got my uh, hip replaced during that time. That might've been part of why I was grumpy and having trouble uh, was the pain in the hip. Um, 
But when I moved back into town, I determined I wasn't going to be that guy. I was just going to say yes to everybody. Say yes to everybody, except when the answer is no. But the answer is always yes, even if after I'm done answering, it sounds like a no. Just coming at the customer and coming at the task that I, I can do that. This is yes. This is an experience that I want to have, even if it's a painful one. It's one that I'm going to learn from. Okay, I like that perspective. That's interesting and kind of runs into a question that I got from, oh, there was actually a, a couple people asked, asked this question. Is there a leather that is more challenging to work with or that you refuse to use when building boots? Refusing to use. No, let's go with the challenging part. Um, The answer is yes, uh, there are leathers that are challenging and I haven't experienced it so much as um, I consider it a process to learn how to work with it. I mean, other makers make with it, you know, what are they doing or what's different, you know, that I'm, that I'm doing. I had a beautiful piece of French calf that I paid like three times as much as I could have for another calf um, that wasn't French. Um, and it checked on the toe when I pulled it over on, on the end of the toe on the crimp board, it, the, the grain of it kind of just opened up and, um, I put, I it shouldn't have done that. Uh, and I addressed it, but I put them aside and, um, a few years later when I was making a pair of boots for myself, I just turned them rough out and turned them into a pair for my, for myself. And it turned out to be a bad piece of leather, but you know, it was high priced leather. And um, so as far as refusing to work on, um, so I've been married for 50 years and you learn how to stay married for 50 years when you're married for 50 years. And uh, my wife's not too nuts about me making another pair with elephant. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind uh, is uh, right now I'm refusing to work on elephant. And why is that? Huh? Why is that? Why? Oh, it is. Um, well, it's endangered. It's protected. It's monitored. It's this. It's that. It's just there just aren't enough of those big beasts. And I just really believe there's a lot more to them than meets the eye. Consciousness. Mm -hmm. The that they have. I mean, how many people would love to have a mother that loved them the way that elephants seem to love those in their tribe you know thankfully i did i'm so grateful for mine she's 96 years old and she's she's doing great or at least she says that the doctor tells her she's in good shape for the shape she's in so uh you know i, I and i i wish that for everybody but um elephant is a, it's a special thing it, it represents mother although mother isn't shaped like the elephant <laughs> <laughs> i respect that it does make me think of a joke my dad used to say, but I'm not going to use it on your uh, on your broadcast here. Oh, why not? You can't just leave us hanging like that. Oh, well, <laughs> he, he was a big beer drinker. I mean, he had a huge belly. I mean, there was a period of time where it was two 16-ounce six-packs of Brew 102 a night. It Whoa. Was, so he had a lot of beer belly. And when everybody would say, anybody would say anything about him, he says, yeah, I'm pregnant with an elephant and the trunk's already hanging. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> he sounds like a piece of work. Oh, he was a character, man. He was a <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so getting back to making boots, I uh, had a question from Barry, and he was wondering about your fitting process and the sizes. Uh, he asks, do you use standard sizes like 9D, 11B, or what is your feeding, fitting process for customers? I, I start with standard sizes and I individualize them according to the shape primarily. First, always starts with the shape. Then it starts with the individual measurement circumferences. You know, the, the shoe stores um, sell what they can get now. And so unfortunately, that's almost like beside the point. I'm sure you've done videos about it on the past. You know, the, uh, the factories aren't making a B anymore. You can't walk into a Western store and have the guy come out with an 11B, which was the most common B that I ever saw all those years of doing shoe repair. So, you know, after I've taken all that, all those measurements, I find that, okay, maybe I am going to order an 11B for you, but I've got to, I've got to add this leather out here on this lateral side because you seem to have a swing to your foot. Your measurement's right, but I'm not going to ask you to force your foot into something that's straighter than your foot is. So shape is like so very, very much important. With the popularity of toe thongs, people's feet have gotten misshapen and that much more because it really contributes to that, the toe thong sandals do. But I'll spend, I mean, there were, there were a, a few customers before I really started to get precise and attack it in an orderly way, where it took me a couple of days to get a last that fit the shape and measurements of my customer. After that, I make a fitter's model, a test fit boot. I think other guests of yours uh, mentioned that they use uh, that technique. Uh, it reassures the customer that the money I'm asking for, for what I'm making for them is gonna fit, and that I'm gonna care about it, certainly. And it reassures me that I'm gonna put all this work into it and I'm gonna get pretty darn close, if not right on. So you make two pairs of boots every time you make a pair of custom boots for somebody. The fitting pair is the first pair, and then you make one off of that. I could I could say yes to that, but the first one is, is an abbreviated version. Okay. Okay. Um, I use remnant leather. Uh, for the counter, I don't use stiff, hard, sturdy, quality leather for the heel counter. I use belly. I mean, all I got to do is ask it to shape and dry and, and to stay in size until my customer gets his foot in there and and draws it out again and then its job is done you know so um i do make two i heard the story about one other bootmaker several years back that um he made he did make two pair of boots the first pair was a pair of black cowhide boots that he made and you, and you got to keep them and you're going to be paying for them along in the way but that way you know he was a little bit more precise but whew, that's a taking that all the way to the end is a whole lot of extra hours when all you're trying to do is make a test of the negative space that you've created for the customer's foot by your alteration on that 11B last. That's interesting. And I like that. I like that approach because that has to make both you and the customer feel much better about trying the end result on. It's not like so much pressure because I heard 
on a couple of other interviews that I've done is that that moment when somebody actually tries the boot on is the most pressure and the most stress to a lot of boot makers. Yes, it is, certainly, yeah. Even with doing a fitter, I mean, you know, risk is just around the corner. I mean, you step out your back door out there behind you, you don't know what's gonna be on the other side. It's, it's life, right? it's life. Um, the other thing about a standard size is that 11B, 9D, whatever, relates to the, to the length from heel to ball, not the extra length from the ball of the foot to the toe. That's special requested. The style may be uh, pointier than a rounded toe, so it's going to be longer instead of rounded. So that it's heel to ball because that's where a, a boot works. If you're not fitting a ball, you're not fit at all. Same Lucchese's. But sometimes a person's got a very low instep and a very short, short heel, you know, I mean, a very low measurement, uh, short heel. And that's because of the shape of their foot. And if you don't take that into consideration, if you don't know that, given the 11B measurements and their width measurements that you've added, the guy's heel's going to slip up and down because it's not locked into place over the instep. So an 11B isn't necessarily an 11B. Maybe to get that instep to be tight for that guy, you're going to have to use something like a, you know, maybe a, a double A because that's going to reduce that circumference there from the short heel area. Uh, and there's, you know, lots of other ways to make adjustments at all. And um, some of the, some bootmakers, somebody like Lee Miller, and if you haven't, I hope you get to interview him. Uh, it, I hope so too. Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, but uh, some of them have tricks that have been passed down through the centuries. Uh, and um, that's a very cool thing. Yeah, it really is. And with all of this in mind as you're building boots, I'm wondering how has your history in shoe repair uh, influenced your boot making career now. Have you brought anything from that life to this? It's interesting what I brought to boot making first. Um, I, I found, and I couldn't even hardly stop myself. Uh, I, I, I arrived apologetically that I was coming from shoe repair. Um, I don't know where it was coming from. I'd heard years ago that there are cultures that view the shoe repairmen among the lowest of cultures. And it's like, that's okay, I'm serving and that's important to me. I don't care if I'm viewed as you know a lower class, but I like what I do, I'm serving the needs of my community. Um, but when I showed up in the bootmaking community, I projected uh, a family environment. There was that, you know, any bootmaker that there was that I didn't know was, had learned in his you know, inherited stuff from his family, the family line deal. Uh, I come to find out that th those days had passed, you know, a couple of decades before I showed up in the, what, the 80s, uh, 90s. So um, I forgot what the question was, going sideways like that. Bring in shoe repair experience to boot making. Okay. So, so here I, here I have this premise uh, every once in a while coming to my mind that, you know, yes, I'm a bootmaker and I came through it for shoe repair. But then um, I had a job where I was asked um, if I would resize uh, a woman's father's pair of boots, an alligator, that was three sizes too big 
and um, could I resize them for her? I think she called me because her husband was in the border guard here in Arizona and she was from Oklahoma. And it's like, well, yes, I think I could, but, and I hadn't really done too many out of state customers yet that would have to travel or, or ship uh, their work to me. Uh, and I wanted to measure my customers anyway. So I told her there's three, here's three names of bootmakers back in Oklahoma. Give these folks a call and see if anybody will do it for you. Uh, I didn't know who two of the three were, but the first guy said, no, no, I'd rather, I'd rather make a pair of boots uh, than repair, or re take apart or whatever. Um, and I think the other guy said, no, it's, it, it's not even possible. It's not even possible. And then the third person um, was Lisa Sorrell. And she says, well, you should call Paul Krause. He does that. It's like, I was like, oh gosh. That was kind of a cool, flattering thing to hear. Um, we later did a collaboration on a little project like that, which I was very tickled about. But um, so, so she comes back to me and she tells me this and she comes out and her boyfriend and her come into my shop and I fitted her all up and I really loved the both of them. And it was just really a compelling story. Father wasn't alive to walk her down the aisle and he had walked her sister down the aisle, but now she had his alligator boots and she was going to have him with her if she could walk down the aisle in them. I'm in. As I'm working That's on so it, cool. I'm thinking the guys who had said no um, didn't view the opportunity to service the way that I went through my whole years of shoe repair. And so it's like, you know, all those those four years that I was at that boot shop during the urban cowboy thing, we we changed out components regularly. I mean, we knew how much to expand an insole when we changed out a sweated out insole on a boot. Uh, you know, we knew this, that, and the other of their construction because we worked in the pieces of them and everything. You know, so I just as I was working on them, I'm thinking, I'm really thankful for those 25 years of shoe repair that gave me the confidence to be able to do this for this young lady. And there've been several other, I've been called a lot. You know, I come up as resizing boots in the Google search or whatever, and people will call up and I'll tell them my first requirement is that the boot be a genuine candidate for it. I won't do it a plastic welt or paper insoles. Um, they have to be a quality, traditionally, Western or a cowboy construction boot, you know, a Texas made cowboy boot, nothing from Canada, no offense, Canada, you're some of my favorite people, not made in some other country. I'm not gonna, I need to know what, what to expect when I dive in there. Cause there's only one way out. I've just got sentiment attached here. You know what I mean? It has to be successful. So that was my qualifier. It has to be, the boot has to be a, a, a genuine candidate for it. And then your emotional attachment is going to have to be pretty great to them also, because, well, the first one I did was 650, but then for her, I think she was 850. And now I'm probably closer to a grand to do it because I just, I totally take the boots apart. I separate all of the components and I pick all of the stitches out of all the holes because that was the only, that's the only way I can really get a clear picture rather than trying to work around clutter, you know, so those years of shoe repair just really gave me an understanding of how to do proper service when I'm doing uh, custom work for people. That's great. And I love your outlook on it because boots are such 
a, a personal thing because they last so long and there's so many memories attached to them. So when you can take one generations and fix it and make it appropriate for the next, as far as fit and sizing and everything, that is such a special thing to be able to pass that down. Yeah, 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 it's, uh, it's why we do what we do, I've said before. I love it. That was such a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I got a question about the Opanka style boots. Because you're the only one that I've ever seen make a Western cowboy boot style with the Opanka uh, stitch. Can you explain this to me? Because I've never seen it before. I bet you have. Have you ever been to a Mexican food restaurant that had a mariachi band? Uh, not a live one, no. Not a live one. There is a traditional boot worn by mariachi players that um, I saw them in Southern California when I lived in the San Diego area. Um, but I, the first time I saw them was in the early 80s, this boot. This, on my website, I've got a picture of one that's made the, the Mexican uh, botin charros is what it's Okay. Are they really pointy? Yeah. Well, no, not, yeah. ne no, not necessarily. But the toe okay. comes in. Not point. Um, botin charros or or dude boots is what that literal translation is. Botin boots, charros are what the you know dudes. So um, they came into my shoe repair shop and it's like these are really cool, but God, I hate the way it looks on the toe. And look at what they have to do to the heel to get the heel to attach. And it's like, oh, that is the coolest, terrible thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so it like stuck in the back of my head, right? And I wondered about it off and on during the years and years and years. And we eventually moved to Prescott and I've got some time on my hand. And I've been chewing on how do I overcome the issues that I objected to about the construction of that. And so I played a little bit and I've got a box full of play and all round up there and another box uh, of playing around up over there. And I kind of decided well, it'll come to me because I don't know what to do about the lining and other issues. I don't, I don't know. So years go by. Finally, uh, Marcel Marsan, a master shoemaker from Hungary, uh, who I, I feel fortunate has sort of taken me under his wing. Um, he shared three um, poor ink quality copies of pages of a Japanese shoemaker making the style of, uh, of shoe using this technique. Uh, with the shoe. I thought I would grab a, a shoe for your uh, readers, your watchers. Yes. This is the style construction that we're talking about. So the sole construction uh, is the trick. And that was my challenge, how to figure out how to do that. You notice that it doesn't come all the way around the toe. Uh, when the sole comes around the toe, uh, I, I personally, I didn't like it. So that's that was part of my quest. And the heel is built more like you would expect in a traditional Western boot. It's, you know, integrated with the back edge of the sole. Okay, so the heel and uh, sole are one unit back here. So these two features were my variation. And the Turkish and Italian guys who make these, they do this all the way back to here, which is cool enough, but a little more challenging, especially if you've got a boot with some heel to it. So I just figured, I'll, I'll just do it up. I'll just do it up in the front part there like that. And um, 
I almost didn't care whether anybody else liked it or not. It was fun to make and it looks cool. And uh, thankfully my wife is, uh, she wears hers regularly. I've got a couple pair myself that I wear. I'm about ready to, I'm about ready to make another variation on it just because I like the international spin. Um, the Navajo moccasins, they have that white alum tanned leather sole that turns up like that. It's usually suede or split leather on the top. Um, I saw it in one of my suppliers and I ordered a side of that white alum tanned leather. And I'm gonna make, I'm gonna call it a slipper using, you know, black uh, wax calf skin that I got from uh, Greg Carmack, Orion Leather, Waco, Texas. I don't have his phone number, I'd say it. Uh, but Greg sent me a piece of uh, waxed French calf and it's going to be kind of a cool combination. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. We'll see. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing it too. What is the advantages and disadvantages of the Opanka style? Yeah. Um, I, I, at first I was saying that it's uh, more flexible. And my own experience that we're a size 12, it is more flexible. And it's a, um, it's a variation on the Baltic country folk dance shoe. We've seen the folk dance shoe where the leather comes all the way up and on the toe, it kind of comes up and it's usually kind of wrapped up around the toe, the, the, the leather is, and it's, and it's woven over the vamp, over the front part of it. And it's a traditional uh, folk dance shoe. Um, so I had a I had a lady who was doing salsa dancing and um, I was talking to her about this and she thought she would like to try it, especially since this has kind of like a, you know, a Botin Charles kind of vibe to it. She thought it would be kind of cool. And um, the trouble was, is that she wore a size four. And by the time all that, all those layers were joined together in that short period of space and the uh, and the sole came, they were too stiff for her. So that benefit is kind of relative to who you are and what size you've got. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but other than that, you know, if it's for casual wear, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't recommend it for, you know, for anything hard and hard wearing, but for casual wear, my, the ones that I've made for myself that I have PK bootmaker put on the graft on the front of the tops, um, they're holding up now. I think it's been five years since I made them. And, you know, I'd clean them up, put a little polish on the edge of the, it's, it's, it's so cool to see this. Uh, this is actually saddle skirting, this leather, because uh, it, it'll shape up like this and still it'll remain kind of firm after it's been dried, after being wet, you know, it firms up well. So that serves the purpose. And so, but it scuffs, it doesn't have the uh, scuff resistant qualities that upper leather does. So um, there's a brand of polish that I use. It's got a lot of pigment to it that kind of brings this color back again and it just pops it really nice. That is so cool. I, it, it seems like you are doing a lot of that and you even won awards for your Apunko boots in the past. Is that correct? Uh, yep. Uh, I, the pair that I made for my wife with a little six inch uh, zipper boot with a little fringe uh, out of uh, bison leather. Uh, they got a first place award in uh, Sheridan, Wyoming, a few years back. It was a leather craft show. 
I haven't entered it in any of the bootmakers uh, competitions, that style. Um, there's, there's things that I want to do with it and I'm still playing with it and learning what the limitations are, you know, it's like, I'm happy to share the PDF that I, or the, rather, well, it is PDF, but the PowerPoint step-by-step uh, -step process. Um, I'm happy to share that, but there's, there's still things that need to be considered, you know, depending on variables within the footwear style or something like that. So um, there's, you know, it's still on a learning curve. <laughs> No doubt. I can only imagine it's, it's a very unique look that I don't, that I don't see very often. Um, I think, it, I think it's really interesting. Um, what are the goals that you have, uh, speaking about the, the progress that you want to make with the Opanka and talking about, uh, the, the, the things that you want to learn. Do you have, goals that you have as a boot maker that you're looking to, to, to achieving at some point in the future? Um, I, instead of uh, describing it as something that I'm looking to achieve in the future, um, I've been using the, uh, the adjective to aspire. I aspire for, my, uh, for the soles on the shoes that I'm making now, because uh, I'm making some shoes, not as many as I should have by now, um, but I, I aspire from my work to be worthy of entering in the Federation shows and the international shows in, in Europe someday. It didn't happen as soon as I was thinking when I first started saying it that way. It's like we still got still working the curve because that's tough, especially hand stitching soles on. The guys who show in these shows, it's almost like uh, it's impeccable. And it's almost very difficult to believe that it's done by hand, um, but it is achievable. So it's something that I aspire to do. Um, the other thing that I'm looking forward to and I continue to is to be worthy of being um, a, a, a bootmaker, a shoemaker, a leather worker that uh, young people call and ask a question of. Every time I've had that, I probably had a half a dozen or so that have become really close friends because they wanted to take a chance and ask if, sir, would you please show me how to do this or whatever? You know, I mean, it's like I, I feel funny being called sir or Mr. Krause. I tell him that was my dad, you know, call me Paul. <laughs> but uh, it, to be thought of as, you know, having something of value to share with somebody who's coming up uh, is important to me because... Um, I met I met some threshold guardians. Are you familiar with Joseph Campbell's work on mythology? Uh, no. It's 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 an incredible thing. His thesis work, his grand work, contribution uh, was called "A Hero of a Thousand Faces," and um, when he he's outlining the different adventures that are common in cultures across time of the hero's journey as it relates to the threshold guardian. The threshold guardian is that gargoyle or the dragon that's out in the moat, out in, the, out in front of the castle. And the, the aspirant, the, the, the knight, uh, the adventurer has to slay the dragon to get into the castle to rescue the beautiful princess and to achieve his holy grail. So the threshold guardian is a real thing. And if 
you aren't prepared to deal with the fact that here's this person who's standing in my way and they can't, they won't let me pass. You know, they won't tell me how can I learn this or they won't tell me what this tool is or how to use it. Um, that, that's how I relate to this. And I don't want to be that guy. I've, I've seen guys like that. And I'm kind of glad for one of them. I mean, I learned something because I pushed myself to figure it out for myself. But it would just, you know, it, it, it binds people together, you know, when, uh, when we're encouraging to one another. And um, that's got to be one of the coolest parts about the Facebook groups that have come up now. Um, my good friend, Wes Schubert, uh, is just one of the most fun, fun guys that I know. I just love him. He made this pair of tops for me. Wow. He did the tops and sent them to me in this blue. And it's like, Wes, these are a little bit too punchy for me. I mean, I'm... I, I wear Western boots, not cowboy boots. Do you know what the difference is? Have you heard this yet? What's the difference? Between a cowboy boot and a Western boot, one of them has the manure on the outside. <laughs> so Wes made these tops, and I said, I kept them around for a long time, and I finally decided I would just put some brown work leather on them. And so uh, these are my... West Sugar, Paul Krause, PK Bootmaker boots. So, um, but uh, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of young guys. West, well, I'll still call him young because he's younger than I. Uh, but there's a lot of guys in their 40s and 50s that are coming up that um, they've broken in. You know, I mean, they you know they're making it. They're doing incredible work and they're encouraging each other. And I just think that's fantastic. Instead of being jealous, I mean, the bootmakers of the 60s and before that. You know, it was like there weren't enough customers, and so everyone was precious. And I really thought it was funny when I found out that um, John Wayne had had boots made by lots of bootmakers who said that they were the maker for John Wayne's boots. So, you know, I mean, it was just highly competitive. And now it just seems like, no, man, I've got all the work I can. I'm taking care of my family. I'll be glad to help you out with this. Uh, Wes said, Wes had a deal. I just wish it would have come together. There were going to be four bootmakers. We were going to come together and over a period of time, it was all going to be filmed and we were like going to be interacting with each other or we'd have a week, you know, alone uh, to do it. I mean, I was just, I was very excited about that possibility. Uh, the whole spirit of collaboration feels like something that's possible within the shoe trade. And it's starting to be done now more and more. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like a great idea. It kind of reminds me of like the cooking reality shows where you get like three cooks on one team and three cooks on another team. That would be a really fun competition video series to watch. It would be. Maybe I'll have to make it in the future. Oh, so it's been talked about before. Uh, somebody had a lot of juice for it <coughs> probably uh, 10 years ago. But it didn't seem to be very practical, and it didn't really come about. Well, we'll see what happens in the future. I would want to be Tim Gunn. Tim Gunn? Gunn, yeah. I'm Run not familiar. Run. You're not familiar? I don't watch it. No, I don't watch it. <laughs> I, learn a, I learn a lot from those shows. I bet. 
uh, one of the things that Tim Gunn, who was like the counselor, the, med the mediator, the guy who kind of like encouraged and, uh, and coached, um, he was all always telling some designer to edit, edit, edit. What do you do with that? Edit, edit, edit. Think about the word three times. What does that mean? Edit, edit, edit. And when you start looking at your work and what you've done and you, you refined it because you've reduced a lot of the clutter that's out there, you've got it down to what now this is the essence. You've edited it down to the essence and that's where that's the goal. So a little, little phrase like that, it's like, wow, that's a good one. So uh, I, I learned a lot from watching Project Runway. That is, that's a good takeaway and a, a good reason to, to watch shows like that, um, just especially in, in your industry. We're running out of time here on Instagram, so I just want to make sure that everybody knows how to contact you uh, to get boots from you. So how does somebody order boots from you? Uh, what's the best way to go about it? Um, online through uh, uh, Paul at Noaz Leatherworks, N-O-A-Z Leatherworks with an S uh, dot com. Uh, you know, that's my email address. Um, Facebook Messenger is probably easiest for uh, most people uh, who are on East, uh, Facebook, of course. My website is unattended to, so I don't really, uh, I, I don't even know if it's connected to my email uh, you know, I haven't been the smartest guy about handling the money for a website. But it does. It has your email and stuff on there. Yeah. My phone number uh, is 928-442-1213. But I don't pick it up because <laughs> <laughs> there's too many robocalls. My cell phone number is on there. So use that when you, when you call. You'll get and I don't Perfect. work in town. I work from my home workshop, so uh, I don't have a downtown address anymore. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Paul, for spending this time and for sharing all your great stories and expertise. This was awesome. Uh, it was great. And if anybody gets a chance to, to, to visit Paul and Prescott, definitely do it because, geez, just, just sharing your knowledge here was amazing. Thank you so much. All right, and thank you for what you're doing also. You're doing great, Jeremiah. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. I love it. Have a great rest of your day, Paul, and thanks, everybody, for watching.